This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Migraine are four times more common in women than men, and because of their predominance in females, it can actually be considered a female health issue. They commonly result in loss of productivity, and this has a significant economic burden. According to a recent report from the Society of Women's Health Research, it's estimated that migraine costs the United States an estimated $78 billion per year, with women accounting for about 80% of the direct medical and lost labor costs. So today we're going to continue our podcast series on headaches and concentrate on migraine in women. Our guest today is Dr. Amal Starling a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. We'll discuss why migraine are more common in females, how the prevalence changes throughout a woman's life, and maybe some specific treatment recommendations for women with migraine. Amal, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start out by talking a little bit about why migraine are more common in women than men. I assume it must have some hormone-related consequence. Is that right? That is exactly right. I will be honest that some of the data is, is still unknown as to exactly why it is so much more common in women than men. But of course, one of the prevailing hypotheses are that it's related to the hormonal differences and specifically estrogen. So estrogen, specifically fluctuations in estrogen, leads to brain cell or neuronal hyperexcitability, as well as modulate serotonin, both of which play a significant role in migraine physiology. In addition, in women, there are comorbidities such as depression and anxiety that are more common. And we do know that in individuals with depression and anxiety, that those are individuals that will have migraine as an additional comorbidity. So those comorbid profiles may also play a role. However, there's also been imaging studies that have demonstrated some structural brain differences and changes between women and men with respect to pain processing. In those studies, though, those are in individuals identified with migraine. And so it's unknown if those changes are a result of having the disease of migraine or if those changes are actually leading to the development of the disease of migraine. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned estrogen. And that's, it's one of the reasons it's more likely in women, but is it the estrogen itself or is it the changes in estrogen levels, you know, with menses and pregnancy, those levels change frequently. So is it the change really? That's the uh, issue you think? Yes. So it's the fluctuations in estrogen, which is why in different times of a woman's life, when estrogen levels drastically change is when someone is more prone to having more frequent or more severe migraine attacks compared to times in a woman's life when estrogen levels are stable, whether that be high and stable or low and stable, where migraine frequency might be reduced. And when we compare women to men, the hormone levels in males are much more stable and they, they may decline over a lifetime, but they don't have those rapid fluctuations. Exactly. That makes sense. 
Well, let's talk about what happens to the prevalence of migraine over a woman's lifespan. When I was doing reading for this, I was kind of surprised to hear that in young children, migraine are actually more common in young boys, but then uh, girls take over and uh, pretty much throughout the rest of their life, they're more common in women. Exactly, exactly. So around ages seven to nine, the prevalence is about the same and younger than that, boys will have a higher prevalence of migraine than girls. However, once they reach about late adolescence and really puberty, as we were talking about those hormonal changes or estrogen changes is when girls take over. And then from there on, women have a higher prevalence of migraine compared to men. It usually peaks at about 30 to 39, although 30 to 50 is really the highest prevalence time for women in migraine. And in fact, in 30 to 50, migraine is the leading cause of disability worldwide. So that's based on global burden of disease study from the World Health Organization. So like you said, great economic loss. This is the time that people are supposed to be the most productive in their lives. And this is when migraine, especially when untreated, is so prevalent and so disabling. Mm -hmm. Now, around that time is when women will typically have menstrually related migraine attacks, which we can talk about later because they can be very different from migraine attacks that are not associated with the menstrual cycle. But that is definitely when the peak occurs. Now, interestingly, when women become pregnant, there are a lot of hormonal changes, of course. And so migraine behaves differently in the first trimester compared to the second and the third trimester. So in that first trimester, going along with the theme, lots of hormonal changes, estrogen fluctuations. And so migraine can worsen during that first trimester of pregnancy. However, once you get to that second and third trimester, the estrogen level is high, but very, very stable. It's about the most stable as it's going to be in a woman's lifetime. And during that time, up to 70% of women with migraine will have significant improvement of migraine. In fact, I have a couple patients that tell me that they love being pregnant because during the time of that second and third trimester, their migraine goes into almost complete remission. Now, unfortunately, there are some women that will still have worsening during even their second and third trimester. And I think what's important to remember is we do have treatment options that are appropriate for pregnant women with migraine. And unfortunately, I have patients that are delaying family planning because they have migraine and they're so worried that they won't be able to use any treatment options during that time period. So I think it's important to make sure that we as healthcare professionals and physicians tell our patients that we can manage your migraine disease during pregnancy. Now, moving on, when a woman reaches perimenopause, estrogen fluctuates a lot. Again, there are peaks and valleys in estrogen levels during perimenopause. And again, migraine prevalence increases around that time. The frequency and severity increases around that time. However, once a woman has entered complete menopause, the estrogen level is low, but most importantly, stable. And for many women during that time when there's stability of estrogen, they may again have a dramatic reduction in the frequency, as well as maybe migraine going into remission. 
You mentioned pregnancy and migraine, and I have noticed this too in my patients where many of them say their migraine frequency and severity diminishes significantly. Uh, it's still probably not the best treatment for uh, preventing migraines, but uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, it's very interesting too, because often during pregnancy, people have an increase in different triggers, right? There might be nausea and vomiting or dehydration. There might be poor sleep. Yet, you know, some women during that second and third trimester are really resistant to those triggers that would have typically caused a migraine attack. So for some women, it's definitely a blessing during that time period. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about how specific migraine attacks can differ in women than men. You mentioned triggers is one. Are the symptoms any different? Uh, the duration of headache different? Intensity? How do they differ from men? Yeah, so they differ from men, specifically when we're talking about menstrually related migraine attacks. There's pure menstrual migraine, and then there's menstrually related migraine. In pure menstrual migraine, it's very rare. That's when women only have migraine attacks associated with their menstrual period. Whereas menstrually related migraine is when women have migraine attacks sprinkled throughout the month, but then also a higher incidence of migraine attacks during that time of their menstrual cycle. And menstrually related migraine attacks have been identified to be more severe more severe in the intensity of the pain, as well as other migraine associated symptoms, such as more severe sensitivity to light and sound and smell, as well as increased nausea and vomiting. Menstrually related migraine attacks are also thought to be longer in duration, as well as more resistant to treatment options. Now, the theory as to why it may be more resistant to treatment options may be related to the data that shows that there's a higher incidence of allodynia in individuals with menstrually related migraine attacks. So allodynia is when non-painful stimulation is painful for an individual. And that is the symptom manifestation of central sensitization. And triptan medications, which are our first line treatment options for a migraine attack, are really good at treating a migraine attack in the absence of central sensitization, in the absence of allodynia. Now, when allodynia sets in, those triptan medications may not be as effective. That's the reason why there is data that shows and patients will report when they can take their triptan early on in the migraine attack, it works better. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's before central sensitization has set in and allodynia is a symptom. However, fortunately, anti-inflammatory medications like NSAIDs can actually reverse central sensitization. So in individuals with menstrually related migraine attacks, there are trials that have demonstrated triptans are effective, but also triptans plus an NSAID, like a sumatriptan plus naproxen combination can be really, really effective. Now you can use the combination pill, but you can also have people use a triptan plus a separate medication of an NSAID like naproxen to help with those menstrually related migraine attacks, especially because of that allodynia. Mm -hmm. In women with menstrual related migraine, do the headaches typically occur just prior to menses, the onset of menses or during the middle, or does it vary from patient to patient? 
Yeah, I, I think the last comment you mentioned is very important because migraine varies so much from person to person. However, in general, it is related to the drop in estrogen that occurs a couple days before someone starts bleeding. Mm -hmm. And so when we sometimes will recommend mini prevention for individuals with very disabling menstrually related migraine attacks, we like to cushion that vulnerable time period. So there have been studies that have demonstrated that using a triptan medication twice a day, starting two days before their period, and then extending for the next seven days, so twice a day for the next seven days, can prevent that menstrually related migraine attack. Sometimes NSAIDs can also be used in a similar fashion for mini prevention of mm -hmm. menstrually related migraine attacks. Okay. How about oral contraceptives? What effect do they have on women with migraine? Again, it varies because oral contraceptives vary quite a bit in the dose of estrogen, as well as how many phases that oral contraceptive pill might have. So specifically, what I'm talking about is if the oral contraceptive has a placebo week, where there's going to be a drastic drop in estrogen, that will likely trigger a migraine attack. And so during that placebo week, a lot of women with migraine will continue to have their menstrually related attacks. However, there are women with migraine who are able to use a monophasic pill, skipping the placebo week with a low dose of estrogen, which stabilizes the estrogen and prevents fluctuations and changes for whom that oral contraceptive pill will actually lead to improvement of their migraine disease and lead to a reduction in menstrually related migraine attacks. So for women with migraine, it's really wise to individualize your selection of an oral contraceptive because it may actually help them as well in terms of their migraine. Exactly. We've been told to use oral contraceptives very carefully in those with migraine for fear of inducing a stroke. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, that's a large area of research as well as continued uh, controversy, even within the headache medicine field. So first of all, migraine without aura does not have an increased risk of stroke. So in individuals with migraine without aura, you can use oral contraceptives with estrogen and you would use the same restrictions and cautions that you would for anyone, even without migraine. So of course you wouldn't want to use an oral contraceptive pill with estrogen in someone who has other vascular risk factors or is smoking. However, when you have migraine with aura, based on data, there's about a two-fold increased risk of stroke just with migraine with aura. And then as we know, oral contraceptives with estrogen also has an increased risk of stroke. And there are studies that demonstrated that in individuals who are on oral contraceptives that are actually less than the age of 45, who are smokers and have migraine with aura, there's a pretty significant increased risk of stroke. So that's a group that you want to optimize their risk factors as much as possible and likely avoid an estrogen containing contraceptive pill. Now, 
progesterone only contraception, such as the pill or a different implant or a device that has progesterone only does not increase the risk of stroke. And those can be used safely in individuals with migraine with aura. There's also been controversy because some of this data is based off of oral contraceptives that use much higher doses of estrogen than we do now. So some of this data is based on oral contraceptives that were using ethanol estradiol in doses that were like 50 micrograms, definitely above 35 micrograms. And data has shown that in oral contraceptive pills with less than 35 micrograms of ethanol estradiol, the risk of stroke is not as significant as greater than 35. In addition, it gets more complicated because there is data that shows that the increased risk of stroke seems to correlate with the frequency of aura. So in individuals that have less frequent aura, meaning once a month or less, compared to the cohort of individuals with aura occurring one time per week or more frequent than that, there is a dramatically increased risk of stroke versus no increased risk of stroke. And if we add that, like we just discussed, for some women, an oral contraceptive that's chosen appropriately, the low dose of estrogen with the steady continuous dose of estrogen, it may actually reduce their migraine attack frequency. And if those migraine attacks are with aura, it may actually push individuals into that less frequent migraine with aura attacks. So the data is still quite confusing. So what do I do in clinical practice? In clinical practice, each patient is an individual. A woman who has migraine, who will need to be on an oral contraceptive pill, we're going to have to look at all their individual risk factors, including migraine with aura. I take into consideration how frequent their aura is. Are they actively still having aura or is it that they've had aura in the past in their life, but are currently have not had aura for several years? And then also look at thing, looking at their other vascular risk factors. And then after that consideration is made, the patient and the healthcare professional can kind of decide which route to take. The safest thing to do is for individuals with migraine and active aura is to use contraception that does not include estrogen. And that can actually be beneficial for some patients because it can reduce their cycling overall. And so that's often the direction that patients and I will decide to proceed. One other hormone-related uh, issue with women is the use of hormone replacement therapy at menopause. So what effect might that have on a patient's migraine? Yeah, not an easy answer again. For some women, it may help them. For some women, it helps with the other vasomotor symptoms associated with perimenopause or menopause. And for some women, it can actually worsen migraine. What's important to keep an eye out for is if initiation of hormone replacement therapy does trigger new onset aura or change in aura or worsening of aura, that's an individual where you would want to remove hormone replacement therapy, because that hormone replacement therapy might be actually leading to hypercoagulability, which is increasing that individual's risk of stroke. 
And so further increasing it. And so you want to remove it for those individuals and explore options that may be helpful for migraine and vasomotor symptoms that are not estrogen containing. Things like venlafaxine or gabapentin, some SSRIs can be very helpful, both for migraine as well as for uh, perimenopausal symptoms or menopausal symptoms. However, for some women that add back of estrogen and stability of the estrogen can be helpful. And so again, it's a personal decision that you have to discuss with the patient, look at their other vascular risk factors, and then do a trial period and let them know that there may be worsening, there may be improvement. It's important to keep that migraine diary during that time and then have a frequent follow-up visit so you can follow up and see what changes have occurred in their clinical status to determine next steps. However, because of the increased risk of stroke with hormonal replacement therapy beyond the age of 65, it's important to always keep in mind that for women who may have some improvement that over time, we want to try to reduce their dose of estrogen and their hormone replacement therapy and try to go to non-hormonal ways of managing any persistent vasomotor symptoms just due to the risk of stroke, regardless of migraine. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to spend just a little time talking about how women with migraine are treated compared to men. Now, let's start by, I want to ask you if there's evidence that a healthcare provider's perception of a patient with migraine differs from women than from men. Overall, there is a lot of stigma in migraine. And since migraine is more common in women, a lot of that stigma is a result of it being a disease that is highly prevalent in women. And just historically, a lot of diseases that are more common in women or are specifically women's health issues have often not received as much research and had as much advancement and have been a little bit ignored and downplayed. So things like endometriosis and uh, even fibromyalgia and definitely migraine falls in that category. There's both internalized stigma as well as this external stigma where a lot of women feel like migraine or these headaches are just something that my sisters have had, my mother had, my grandmother had. It's just something I have to deal with. And often they're not even presenting to a healthcare provider about their symptoms. But even when they do present to their healthcare professional about their symptoms, unfortunately, often they are brushed off. They're told that it's related to stress, it's related to depression, it's related to anxiety, and they're not even receiving a formal diagnosis. And then if you don't get a formal diagnosis, you're not going to get migraine-specific treatment options. So there's data that shows that in people with migraine, less than 50% of people are actually talking to a healthcare professional about their symptoms. And then there's less than 25% of people with migraine, majority women, who are talking to a healthcare professional, receiving the appropriate diagnosis, and then receiving standard of care, basic treatment options for migraine. So there's good evidence that shows that women with the same symptoms as men regarding coronary artery disease are treated much differently. And it sounds like very similar thing is happening with migraine. Exactly, exactly. Well, Amal, you've uh, given good evidence that shows women really should be looked at differently when they have migraine compared to men. 
Can you kind of summarize our discussion, maybe give two or three key points related to migraine in women? So with respect to migraine in women, the important things to remember are that migraine is highly prevalent, especially in women. It's three to four times more common in women. It affects one in five women. And so if you as a healthcare professional are seeing a patient who is a woman, always think about migraine and consider screening for migraine in all of your patients that are women. Migraine is a lifelong chronic disease. However, during a woman's life cycle, it will vary in frequency as well as intensity due to those hormonal changes. But what I really want to emphasize is that regardless of the stage of life, regardless of pregnancy, regardless of menopause, we have treatment for women with migraine, both acute treatment options and preventive treatment options. So if we can increase the identification of migraine by looking for individuals who have headaches that result in impairment, sensitivity to light and nausea, and we can diagnose migraine, we can treat it. And Amal, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about treatment and management of uh, migraine, but that is being uh, reserved for another podcast. So we will address that specifically because that itself is a huge topic. There's a lot of new products out there. Yes, it's an exciting time to be in the field, that's for sure, and a great time to be a patient if you have to be a patient with migraine because there are new options available. Well, we've been discussing migraine in women with Dr. Amal Starling, a neurologist and headache specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Amal, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.